0: Welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Brian Feraldi. Brian considers himself to be a financial educator. Wow, did I ever learn a lot in this last podcast. If you're interested in stocks, investing, macroeconomics, any kind of personal mindset for investing, this is a pod for you. So hope you sit back and enjoy this one.
1: Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today.
0: Hey, Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Joe, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no worries. I thought we could just start with a little introduction, some things about yourself, what you're working on lately.
1: Sure. My name is Brian Feraldi. I consider myself to be a financial educator. I largely now create content that relates to demystifying finance. I personally have been investing in the stock market for almost 20 years now. So a lot of the content that I create is about that. I'm digging into how to analyze individual companies and talking about things like how to analyze financial statements, how to judge management teams, how to think through risks Et
0: yeah, that's awesome. I know you're a big proponent of the long-term mindset. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of how risk goes down as you progress further and further.
1: Yeah, that's one of the hardest things to understand as an investor. Uh, prior to knowing anything about investing, I thought that the stock market was a random number generating machine, right? It was just like I saw stocks going up. Every day, stocks going down. Every day, it totally seemed like a random thing that happened. And I thought my natural inclination was you go to the stock market so that you can buy low and sell high. And that is how you make money in in the market. I had no understanding of uh, the fact that behind the companies, the, the, the stocks that were publicly traded, there were actual businesses and that there was actually a relationship between how the business performs and how the stock performs. That is something that I had to learn the hard way over time because that is something that is not intuitive at all. I think one of the reasons why that is so unintuitive is we are taught nothing about that formally as part of our our education. I personally graduated from college with a degree in business, and I still had no clue what the stock market was, how it worked, and how the companies that traded on the stock markets were related to the businesses behind them. So I studied accounting, I studied marketing, I studied business law, all kinds of stuff that I learned. Never did, I, did, we, did we learn about what the stock market is and how it works? And it's only because I've become very interested in investing on my own post-college and through self-education that I've learned that there is a relationship between what a business does and what its stock does. Those two things are completely disconnected from each other over short periods of time. However, those two things are 100% correlated to each other over long periods of time. The reason that I personally invest with a long-term mindset is it's the only way I know how to do it.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes down to personalization of your investing style. Cause I know that for some people it might be harder to maintain that long-term mindset and they could perhaps be better traders. And then for other people, you know, like yourself or, or like me, I prefer the long-term mindset. I'm a fairly patient person by nature. So for me, that's what works. But I do find that I run into problems sometimes, or I call them problems anyways, in trimming or you know maybe taking some profits where I should have, because of course I build the conviction in a company. And then if it goes up in the short term, I think, well, of course it goes up. It's an amazing company, in my opinion. How do you feel about those kind of issues and how do you deal with those?
1: Yeah. So investing is hard, period. So let's just understand that. The learning to develop a long-term mindset and learning to think about businesses through the lens of investing is incredibly hard. There are a number of elements that are at play when it comes to investing. Not only do you have to be decent with analysis, uh, you have to be you have to understand human psychology. You also have to understand macroeconomic factors. You have to understand how other participants are going to influence markets, uh, et cetera. So there's a lot going on. And money is, by by its very nature, an emotional it's emotional subject that is hard for our brains to handle. Uh, so to your point, if you if you buy something and that thing uh, goes up, you have an affinity. You have a natural likeness for, for that thing. You you are happy that that thing, you don't want to give up that thing because it's making you money. Conversely, if you buy something and it goes down, you hate that thing. You think it's awful. You want to get that thing out of your life. These are just a few of the emotions that you have to deal with uh, as an investor. And, and if you don't have a solid financial education, uh, it's natural for those feelings feelings to lead you to take actions that are detrimental to your wealth in the long term. So just just understand if you're going to be invest up front. Investing is hard.
0: Absolutely. I agree. I think it's so much more difficult than you would imagine. And one of the sort of shortcuts to wealth or you know cheat codes as some people might say is index investing. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why is because you don't necessarily feel those companies that are losing in the index or necessarily feel the gains of, you know, the winners, like, you know, the fang in the last couple decades or whatever. And I kind of sort of relate it to real estate, you know, if if people saw their housing values going up and down, they'd be losing their minds. And indexing is sort of a similar thing where you sort of just ride the wave up slowly. So I think that you'd be a perfect person to ask this question. What are your thoughts on, you know, indexing versus stock picking and one strategy or the other is better for?
1: I firmly believe that 99% of people should index. 99% of people should index. Now, why is that? Index funds plus dollar cost averaging is the biggest cheat code that I know of in investing. If you are gonna work a salaried job and you contri- continually take a portion of the salary that you earn and you put that into the, the stock market over, over a dollar cost averaging period, so you're not making decisions at all based on economics, you're just continually uh, adding into an index fund like the S&P uh, five, 500, uh, history shows that you can expect to earn somewhere around 10-ish percent nominal return, six-ish, 6.5% real return after factoring in inflation. If you can compound your capital, even at a 5% return over a period of decades, and you contribute a modest amount to it, that will be all the money you need for the end of your life, period. Now, the reason I say 99% of people should 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 index and not even bother with individual stocks isn't because 99% of people aren't smart enough. It's because 99% of people don't care. They don't have any desire to learn about investing. There's a lot that you have to learn if you want to buy individual uh, stocks. You need to learn how to read financial statements. You need to learn how to read SEC filings. You need to learn, how to learn how to judge management teams. You need to learn how to think about competition and business models and and value and value creation. You need to think through uh, how the macroeconomic could impact that. You need to think you need to understand evaluation. You need to understand what sectors. There is a lot that you have to understand to pick individual stocks successfully. Most people, the idea of putting the time and effort in to do that. Would be, completely, would be a complete waste of time for them. right? If you're the type of person that the idea of cracking into an SEC filing b- would bore you to tears and just not interest you at all, no problem, index funds. But if you are in that weird, weird 1% of people that enjoys learning about investing and you find the challenge of investing to be incredibly intellectually stimulating, then I think you have the green light to buy individual stocks.
0: Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with that. I think it's a passion project if you want to pick stocks. And it, it really takes a lot of time and effort. And I'm one of those people who, you know, I listen to podcasts in the gym, I'll be like putting my reps in and listening to deflation or whatever. So I definitely think that I'm in that 1% weird mm-hmm. area that I just can't turn it off. But what I find with that is I find myself kind of more of a generalist. I sort of even if you look at my podcast, I'm all over the place I'm talking about energy, I'm talking about you know, dividend stocks, I'm talking about this, that. And I do wonder sometimes, what are your thoughts on sort of in the financial world, being a generalist or being maybe a specialist where you just focus on you know, tech stocks or commodities or something like that?
1: I personally think there's huge value to being a generalist. I think if you hyper-focus on any one particular sector and industry and get to know that thing really well, that can be great if you are a professional. If you can become known in the professional community for, I understand REITs. Better than anybody else. I understand medical devices better than anybody else. I understand upstream mid cap uh, oil producers better than anyone else. That level of expertise can be good for selling that information to to other investors or working in the financial industry as, as an analyst. There can be uh, upsides to specializing if you're going to work on Wall Street, if you're going to be buying individual. Uh, stocks and just want to research them, I think there's big benefits to being a generalist because then you can kind of get a broad swath of the economy. You can learn lessons by digging through and thinking about uh, different types of of businesses and all of your concentrated knowledge. uh, you, You don't want all of your capital in one concentrated sector because there's a variety of reasons that that sector could underperform for long periods of time. And if that's the only thing you know, uh, you're going to have a crazy uh, variance uh, with what your performance is. And the only thing that's going to matter is the performance of that particular uh, sector. So I personally think that uh, individual investors should focus on being generalists, not being on hyper-specific. That's
0: really interesting. I really thought you might go the other way with that. So it's kind of nice to hear that you're sort of in my boat. You think that a general knowledge is sort of Helpful Because you can sort of see other things coming from different sectors, perhaps, when you're looking at individual stocks. And one thing that comes with that is, you know, portfolio management, the way that you build your portfolio. I had Jordan Syed on, he's a nutrition guy. It's its actually really interesting when you see fat loss charts, they kind of go down like this, very similar to stocks, that's you have to maintain that long term mindset. And one thing he said was the dose determines the poison, which means that you can have little cheat days, and it's not really going to affect your nutrition too bad, as long as you eat small amounts. And I think when I pick stocks, you know, maybe you put a little bit into something super speculative, and then for the most part, the base of your portfolio is safer. But how would you suggest that somebody build their portfolio?
1: Very similar to what you just just said. Personally, I, I don't mind speculating, uh, with 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 a small portion. of of my portfolio. Uh, I've done so. uh, I enjoy doing so. I just invest going in knowing that the odds are going to be very heavily stacked against me. And I know that I'm going to be wrong a whole lot. However, if speculating does put the next Tesla into my portfolio or does put the next Amazon uh, into my portfolio, the entire process will be worthwhile if you invest in one of those future mega blue cap winners very, very early early on. And plus, if that, if that keeps you mentally stimulated with investing, I, I, think that, I think there's reason to do so. What I don't think you should do is put 100% of your portfolio or any meaningful amount of your net worth into highly speculative stocks. Uh, case in point, that was the, I'm going to put this in air quotes, that was the right strategy in 2020. If you look at what happened in 2020, when a whole bunch of people were just getting into the market for, for the first time, the, the, the stocks that went up the most were the ones that were the most speculative. The stronger, the more found foundational the business, the less it went up, and the weaker, the more speculative, the higher the revenue growth, the faster it went up. And, and that kind of instant feedback taught a whole bunch of investors, okay, just maximize your portfolio around revenue growth, end of story. The only thing that matters is revenue growth, and that is a that is the wrong lesson uh, to learn from a period like uh, twenty twenty. What we've seen over the last year, eighteen months, really, has been the exact opposite of that. Right? Uh, revenue growth in twenty twenty was the cure all. Now revenue growth is seen as well. Revenue growth does not matter? It's free cash flow. Are you actually producing profits? What, what are the unit economics? All the other things that should matter with an investing are coming back into light. So that is a lesson that people I think have learned the the hard way. I personally learned that lesson of the hard way. So what I do is I put the bulk of my net worth into the highest quality companies that that, that I can find. And by high quality, I mean uh, a range of things. So they are financially extremely strong. Uh, They have a wide and enduring moat. They have a secular growth trend. So they're continuing to grow even now during periods of financial stress. They are relatively low risk and they are moderately valued compared to their growth Potential. Basically, they're companies that you can anchor a portfolio around, and in many cases, they're the same. They're the same companies that the indexes themselves are anchored around. Um, so that makes up the core of my portfolio, and then from there, it does get riskier. But as the risk builds, the position size that I keep uh, shrinks uh, o- over time. And the way that I moderate r- the risk now uh, is primarily with two things. First, and most importantly, I keep my personal financial life extremely conservative extremely uh, c- c- conservative by having extremely conservative personal finances, which I define as a uh, multi-month emergency fund, multiple sources of income, a high savings rate and zero debt. Um, that's my that's my personal financial situation. That enables me to withstand financially huge amounts of volatility in my investment portfolio. And because I can withstand huge amounts of volatility in my investment portfolio, I can do things like put 100% of my capital into the stock market. I don't need bonds to buffer the, the volatility uh, because I want my capital in the in the asset class that I believe is going to generate the most, the highest returns over the longest uh, uh, periods uh, of time. So that's one thing I do is keep my personal finances extremely conservative. The second thing I do is I ease into stocks slowly in small chunks. If I come across a company that really excites me, that I'm like very interested in, I think could have a bright future ahead. I don't put of my portfolio into that stock on day one. I keep my initial purchases small. Uh, The reason for doing so is when I make my first purchase, that's when I know the least about the company. I'm still researching it. It's past whatever filter, my my filter upfront, but I'm still getting to know the company. Moreover, when you're buying a stock, what you're actually buying the way that you make money on that stock is the future execution of the business. You're making a bet that this business is going to execute in the future, which is an unknowable thing, at a rate that would provide me with a, a strong return. That is an unknown. Now, you can look back at the history of that company and make projections about what's going to happen in the future. But either way, you're taking a risk about what's actually going to happen in in the future in that company. Due to that risk and due to my, my knowledge being at the lowest level it would be for me to have to own a stock, I keep my position size small. And then I follow that company over a period of months, quarters, and years. And as my knowledge and confidence in that business grows because of the business continuing to uh, execute, so does my investment into that in, into the business. There's no need to go all in on a company uh, on, on day one. I've done that before, and I've been burned far more times than that's paid off.
0: Absolutely. I agree. I think that you're not going to know a company any better than when you have money invested in it. Yes. And for whatever reason, it's happened to me too. I'm looking at the quarters. I'm waiting to see the earnings report. I'm watching the news. Anything that I have money into, I know way better than any of the companies I don't. And you can listen to all the podcasts you want or you can research. But until you actually have some skin in the game, I find that it's, it's hard to be as interested. And that's obviously just like we mentioned earlier, our emotional attachment to that money we've invested and also a need to be right. I think that that's something that's overlooked sometimes is people want to be right. And sometimes, depending on what the stock does, you feel like you are right or wrong, and you kind of want to be reassured that you made the right decision with your money. Um,
1: Well, uh, but you can get into trouble uh, doing that. Absolutely. Because the the, the one unfortunate thing, just by the nature of investing itself, is the feedback mechanism that investors get about whether they are quote-unquote right or they're quote-unquote wrong always relates to price. The price of the the stock, right? What happened to the price of the stock? If you buy a stock at 30 and the stock goes to 40, you're right, or you feel right. If you buy a stock at 30 and that stock goes to 15, you're wrong, or you feel wrong. But the real answer is that's not enough information that is not enough information to, for you to know if you made a good decision or not, even if it feels very natural to know that, right? Because in the real world, if we get punched in the face, we know that we did something wrong, right? We did something to deserve deserved get punched in the face. Or um, if something pleasurable happens, we feel like we did something uh, right. The feedback is instantaneous uh, in the real world. In the investing world, the feedback is, is, is measured over a period of years, years. It's like a three-year lag at minimum before you can tell if you made a good Good decision uh, or, or not. And the way that you can tell that you made a good decision or not is by watching the business performance, the business performance, not the stock performance. You, the, the, the way that you should judge, did I make a good decision or not, is by saying, is revenue increasing? Are margins expanding? Is the balance sheet getting better? Is profitability there? Is the company launching in new geographies? Are new products that have been launched um, occurring favor? Is it growing organically? That's the way that you tell whether or not you made a good investment or not. But that's really hard to do. And that's really hard to focus on, given that the price information is in your face all the time.
0: Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And the way that you put that, you know, it's a. I guess I suppose it's okay to want to be right as long as you understand what being right looks like, right. and it's not necessarily a price increase. It's the business is succeeding, right? And over the long term, you know, it's it's just a mindset of what right is, because everybody wants to be right, of course. But you have to maintain the right idea of what right is. And one of the things that I heard you talk about on We Study Billionaires recently was the study the Agony and Ecstasy Study done by Faction J.P. Morgan. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that briefly. I know you already did on the other podcast, but I thought it was just a great uh, discussion.
1: Sure. There's uh, Academic papers get put out all the time. Um, Many of them are are not useful. There are a few that I think have profoundly impacted the way that I think about uh, investing. One of them is the Agony Ecstasy, which is by uh, J.P. Morgan. And what that study did is it looked at, um, I don't have it in front of me, but it's a few thousand companies and it measured their returns over a period of 30 years. Uh, to me, the biggest takeaway, the the, the, head, the headlining number uh, takeaway from that, that study is, is this. Prior to reading that study and understanding the market, if you were to ask me what percentage of stocks outperform the benchmark over time, I would have said 50% outperform, 50% underperform, seems logical, right? What that study showed is that, that that's wrong. Um, in fact, two thirds of companies underperform the index over time, and one-third of companies outperform the index uh, over time. And if you look at at what actually drives the the returns, the gains in the indexes over time, it is a small fraction of of companies, something like 4% of companies. 4% of companies are mega, mega winners. But the returns, maybe, it's, excuse me, 7%, 7% of companies are such mega winners that they the gains from those small mega winners pay for all of the losses of the losers combined and then some. What I love about that is if you go out and you buy 10 stocks randomly, what you can expect isn't half of them to beat the market and half of them to underperform the market. What you should expect to happen is four of them are gonna be horrific investments. Three of them are going to underperform the market, but they might not lose you too much money, okay? Uh, Two of them are going to do well. They're going to outperform the market. And one of them is going to go up so much that, that it pays for all of the losses of one through seven combined. Now, when you see that happening as an investor, It's very confusing. It's very natural to tell yourself, I suck at investing. And if it wasn't for fill in the blank mega winner, my returns have been awful. But in fact, that's how the markets work. That's how all stock market uh, indexes uh, work. And that's what happens in the S&P 500. It's a minority of companies that drive the majority of the returns. And if you look back at many of the most famous investors of all time and the best returns of all, of all time, you'll see a similar pattern where a select few mega winners provide such huge gains that it drags their entire performance uh, higher uh, over time. My favorite example of that is Ben Graham. Ben Graham, the the father of value investing, Mr. Warren Buffett's teacher, Mr. butt investor, right? Buy companies that are trading below their working capital, right? Hyper-focused on valuation. What most people don't know about Ben Graham is that his returns were actually semi-average except for one company. Do you know what company that is?
0: I think that was Geico, correct?
1: Correct. He he got a 500-plus bagger. On Geico, which he made his uh, he, he made his number one position. So the gains that he got from Geico, just Geico, outweighed all of the losses he ever had combined, and all of the gains that he got from every other investment that he gained uh, combined. So that's that's Ben Graham, who literally owes his entire career performance to to one mega winner.
0: Yeah, it's just amazing when you break it down like that. And I think it brings in the question of opportunity cost because sometimes I look at some of the safer investments, like, you know, banks or or whatever, utilities, and I think, well, these are great. But am I in the market to look for the one company? Or am I in the market to have a 6% average, you know, compound return? And sometimes I struggle with that. And I think probably the best way is just to diversify. But then, Recently, I was looking into some of Charlie Munger's ideas and he he goes with the three stock portfolio. So he picks three really good companies and he thinks that that's sufficient. So, you know, there's just so many different ways to go into the market and to attempt to build wealth. I just wonder what your thoughts are on the three stock portfolio and whether you think that's enough diversification.
1: On that front, I say to each his own. You would ask a hundred different investors about what's the appropriate amount of diversification. You're going to get a hundred different answers. Some will say a, a handful, five. How can you get to know five companies better that, than that? And it makes no sense to have more your know, capital in any in, in any more companies. Just make sure they're five great companies. Other people like like uh, Peter Lynch own thousands of companies uh, over their, their their career. And they are very comfortable uh, with buying everything that, that that comes across their plate so long as it meets some uh, criteria bar. There are pluses and minuses to both strategies, right? And I, I, I think it's more about finding a strategy that works best for you. Personally, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if my entire net worth was in three companies, even if those companies were Amazon, uh, Berkshire, and MasterCard, I still would have trouble sleeping at night given the, the risk involved with individual stock selection risk. Other people are extremely comfortable uh, with that much risk. So it really is dependent on the, the investor uh, themselves. You mentioned I go back and forth about, should I invest in dividends or utilities or, or those kind of things? I've thought that same thing too. Uh, however, my logic for focusing on high quality growth stocks primarily, is the only reason to invest in something that's that's not the index fund is you want something that the index fund can't provide, right? So a, a lot of people such as myself think, well, I want to outperform the index. The index provides this return. I want to outperform uh, the, the, the index. And the way that you outperform the index is by looking for those mega winners of tomorrow, conversely some people say well the index pays 2% dividend yield i want 3% dividend yield so i'm going to focus on on dividend stocks oftentimes if you went if you go that route you're often purposely underperforming the index on a price gain uh, in exchange for the higher dividend yield upfront. You're exchanging upside potential for lower risk and more income uh, today. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But to me, if I'm going to go through the effort of identifying and finding individual stocks, the way I want to be compensated for that effort is in higher than average returns. And If I was interested in dividends or value or whatever it was, I wouldn't bother with that I would just put the money in the index fund.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And I know one of the themes that you've written about is that you have to invest to build wealth. And and I think that can come in different forms. It doesn't necessarily have to be the stock market. You know, it could be real estate. It could be your own business, but it, it takes a different personality for each type of investment that you decide to use. And one of the things also that I've noticed is that you've said humans are born to be bad at investing, which I think is probably true. You know, we talk about our emotions. We talk about how to deal with this kind of thing. I wonder if you just had, you know, maybe some tips for people who are currently struggling. I know we're in a bear market right now. So, you know, some people who are maybe struggling with some doubt about their investments moving forward.
1: Well, understand again, that two things. One, investing is hard, really hard. Two, you were absolutely born to be a bad investor. Now, what do I mean by that? Everything about our biology and our psychology today is perfectly designed to keep us alive 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago, the way that you stayed alive, you were born into a tribe of a few hundred people at most. And every emotional reaction, every thought that you have, all the fear and the greed that you have is about surviving in that kind of environment. The way that you survive in that kind of environment is you go with the group. Whatever the group is doing, whatever you're seeing your friends and family do, that's what you do because that's where safety is. If you see your friends and family getting excited about something, you get excited about that thing. If You see your friends and family scared about something biologically, you get scared about that thing. So everything that makes us so well adapted to surviving in that environment 10,000 years ago also makes us perfectly horrendously to be adapted for investing in the markets. The natural thing that everybody wants to do, investing in the markets, is to pile in when returns look effortless. Some people will only invest in the market after they've heard from their neighbor or from their grandson or from whoever that making money in the market is easy. You buy something and it has gone up. And they show you, look how much money they made in the market. And that convinces people to to come in. So people naturally want to buy. It feels best to buy at the top. Conversely, when does it feel the worst to invest? Right now, when only thing you see is negative headlines, when the returns from the market have been read, when everybody on social media is talking negatively about the market and they're highlighting the Fed or inflation or bad things and the recent history of the market is read. You can track this very clearly, especially if you're active on social media like Twitter. In 2020, Twitter was a buzz Talking about investing and individual stocks and Kathy Wood. And those were the tweets that were getting the most play and, and going out there. And there were hundreds of people contributing to that conversation. 90% of those people are gone. They're not there anymore because they were essentially renters. They, they, were, they were tourists of the, the stock market. They weren't they weren't residents of the stock market. The only way to do well in the market is to stick with it for long periods of time, especially especially now, especially when things are going against you. And human nature is programmed has programmed you to want to do the exact opposite uh, of that. So if it feels like you're getting down on yourself, if you feel like you're scared, if you feel like everything you do is wrong, uh, that's because you are biologically programmed to be bad at investing, just like everybody is.
0: Absolutely. And everybody feels it. Some people feel it a little bit more than others, and some mm-hmm. people feel it a little bit less but everybody feels it and there's no shame in feeling a little bit of fear in a bear market. One thing I wanted to say, I got a, I have a two-part question for you. First of all, congratulations on having zero debt because that is really difficult to do. And I think that you're probably in the 0.1% of people in the world that have zero debt. So congrats on that. And I think with that, it makes it easier to deal with these macro headwinds coming in of inflation and all of this stuff because people with mortgages like myself, find it kind of challenging to say, well, I need to invest, but I don't know where these rates are going to be in so many years upon renewal. So I guess one question I have given what you and I both know about compound interest and the way that the market can grow. Do you think that people should prioritize, you know, paying down debt and try to get to zero like you so they can establish that stronger mindset in the market? Or do you think that they should still be investing and getting compounding those returns in the index fund?
1: I believe that the order that you think about your your money is actually very important. Funny you're saying this. We uh, actually literally launched a course this week that teaches people the order that I like to think about. And you can check that out on my newsletter. Uh, However, to to offer some some mindset about that, not all debt is created equally. Debt is different depending on what type of debt uh, you have. Uh, Credit card debt and mortgage debt are both debt, but they're not the same types of debt. When when you have some types of debt, such as credit card debt, you should be acting as if you are in a financial emergency because you are. If, if compound interest is working against you from consumer debt, you, you should, you treat that as an emergency because it is literally a financial uh, emergency. So what I would say to those people is don't invest, prioritize getting your personal finances in order. Also, you have to think through things like, do you have access to a tax advantage accounts through your employer? In the United States, Uh, many companies, many, many uh, employers offer these things called 401ks. And a 401k is a tax advantage way to save. And one way they sweeten the pot to convince you to do so is by giving you a free extra contribution. If you decide to participate in these plans, that is free money, literally free money that you can get invested. And that is absolutely where you should be putting capital that you have before you pick individual stocks or do anything outside of that. So my preference is for people to get their financial life in order completely, Um, and knock down those basic blocking and tackling things before they start investing. I don't think you have to pay off your mortgage before you start investing in the stock market on your own, but there's a whole bunch of things you need to do before you pay off your mortgage, before I think that you should even consider putting extra money in the markets.
0: Yeah, I think that the prioritization of debt is key. I'll have to look into that newsletter of yours because I think that would be a really interesting read and I'll link it out in this show too for anybody else who's interested And so the second part of that question is, I know you're a big technology guy. I wanted to just ask you from a macro perspective. I don't know if you dip into these waters too much, but where do you think we're going to go with inflation, deflation? Are you in the, you know, Peter Schiff camp that inflation's here to stay. It's never going away. Or are you in the Kathy Wood camp that innovation and technology is going to push into deflation?
1: First off, I know about myself that my own personal history with making macro calls is awful, terrible. And you should not listen or put any stock in anything that I was about to say, nor do I put any stock into things that a lot of other people uh, say. One reason that I do that is my experience investing in 2008. The end of 2008, we had massive government spending to rescue all of these banks. Unemployment was skyrocketing. Trillions of dollars had been printed. And the drumbeat from so many macro thinkers was it was going to be a double dip recession and stagflation and inflation was about to get out of control. That was such a logical, logical argument based on everything that just happened in 2008. And what happened next? 10 years of the lowest inflation rate on record, on record. That experience showed me how you can take macro data and make a very convincing argument for it to say anything you want. Which is why we have people like you pointed out, Kathy Wood, on one side saying inf- inflation is going to rapidly heading towards zero. And Peter Schaeffer, whoever said, on this side saying inflation is here to say what's going to happen, I don't know. And that is always the case where I don't know because I also can't predict things like COVID and I can't predict things like the war in Ukraine. And the, the, the macroeconomic landscape is akin to voodoo. Like trying to understand that is like trying to understand magic essentially. However, if I had to place a guess, I would guess I would be in the inflation is going to be more mild than the the doomsayers are saying, but I think it's going to be bigger than a lot of the people that are saying it's going to be zero. So I think we're going to see, I think it's going to eventually trend out towards a more moderate level of inflation. Let's just say two, three percent long-term. And I do think rates will eventually come back down. But man, oh man, would I put zero, zero investment dollars behind that thesis?
0: Yeah, I agree. It's so difficult to figure it out. I think I had a very similar experience in the last couple of years with the whole transitory thing with the Fed. They were very convinced that inflation was transitory and the arguments that they made, supply shortages, COVID, the war is not going to last. All of these things made a lot of sense to me. And I thought, yeah, inflation probably is transitory. And now here we are at 8% you know, however many years later. So I have to agree. It's, you really can't put too much stock in anything that people are saying. So I think that's really a good way to put it. I think just to close it out, last question I have for you. Well, it's more of a question for tips when it comes to maintaining balance in your life. I know that it's really important to not just get hyper-focused on finances. So I wonder if you had some tips for people just to keep that good work-life balance.
1: Yep. So that's something I sucked that for a long time. I love and have been obsessed with the stock market for a period of of years, but uh, I think of, and I, I love the concept of money and investing. Like I could talk about that all day. I just like love everything about that. Important thing for that. I try to remind myself is the point of money is not to maximize a number in a database. The point of money is so that it enables us to live exactly the life that we want. And as much as I think money is important, savings important, investing uh, is important, I would personally rather live a life that is rich in experiences and relationships than one that is rich in uh, material possessions and, and and capital. I think that if you're extremely wealthy, but you have bad relationships with your family or you don't have any friends, uh, that sounds like a horrible life to live to me. I would rather be poor, but have lots of life experiences, lots of friends and lots of family and lots of laughs, uh, than the reverse. So if you're really interested in finance and you're really interested in money, such as I am, I, I would just say, go out of your way, Make a serious concerted effort to make friends, to meet up with friends and to see a f- family that will bring more richness to your life than any dollars ever could.
0: Absolutely. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. With that being said, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. This has been very insightful for me, and I really appreciate your knowledge. If there is anywhere you want to let people know where they can find your material, your content, feel free to share that.
1: Yeah, thanks Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. My name is Brian Feraldi. If you're interested in that course I was talking about, the website is financialwellness.school.
0: Okay, awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: Joe is not a
0: financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.